0: Welcome to Let's Face the Facts. I'm David Almeida, and I'm your host for this rewatch podcast for the classic sitcom, The Facts of Life. I'm an actor in Orlando, Florida, and every week I bring you some of the greatest talent in the Central Florida arts community. Join us as we synopsize, analyze, criticize, and ultimately idolize the show, episode by episode. Hey guys, welcome back. It's another week, another Wednesday, another show. Thank you for downloading and pressing play. I'm recording the intro outside. It is windy. There is traffic. You can hear my air conditioning unit here. And uh, it's, I don't even know what this sounds like, but I'm determined to get this episode done. So my guest this week is actor, singer, improviser, musician, and Canadian James Bondi. James has been on the show before. It was great to have him back. It was great to talk to him because, as you know, we actors at uh, the theme parks really haven't worked since last March. And uh, a lot of us have just fallen out of communication with each other. So that's one of the extra nice fringe benefits of doing this show. Uh, before we start, I do need to welcome a new 2D fruity, Jennifer R. If you follow the Facebook Uh, posts that I do, you will see that Jennifer R. is a longtime and frequent commenter, and she's also a longtime friend. I've known her for many, many years, and I'm very pleased, Jennifer, to welcome you to the family. If you want to be like Jen, you can sponsor the show by going to our Patreon page. Check out the link in your show notes and on our website next thing before we get started is last week right after the show dropped I get a text from Matthew where I'm talking about the kid that plays Brian Natalie's boyfriend and how he was 3D in Back to the Future and then I get talking about the other actress we had on who played Babs in Back to the Future Matthew reminded me, he's like "Um, David, remember Thomas Wilson was also on the Facts of Life, the one that actually played Biff and I was like, oh, duh I completely forgot. How could I forget that? So, duly noted. So thank you, Matthew, for keeping me honest, true, and accurate. But back to this week's show. James Bondi and I watched season six, episode 12, The Rich Aren't Different. The original air date was December 12th of 1984. I think we're ready to jump on in. Let's face the facts with James Bondi. Well, he is back, James Bondy, once again from his house. Hi, James. Hi,
1: David. Good to see you.
0: Yeah, good to see you. It's been a damn long time.
1: Yeah, um, I can't believe this much time has just gone by. It just feels like it was just yesterday.
0: Uh, yeah, it, and that it's been almost a year. We're, we're gonna. It's gonna be a year in March since any of us were just backstage hanging out doing our jobs, like like it was any other day.
1: Cra- That's ridiculous. It's crazy.
0: Yeah. I was looking back, and I the comment I made about From Your House is that last time you were on the show, which was, by the way, March of 2019. It's almost two years. Wow.
1: Well, simpler times back then, wasn't it? <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm telling you. I just had Jodi on again, and she had been on the show right before you last time so we were having this same conversation of how has it been almost two years since that time when i went to your house brought my equipment and recorded by remote i think that was the first time i did that actually
1: yeah yeah and now look at this i'm still in my house re- recording another episode
0: <laughs> yep never have to leave the comfort of your own home and uh and that's interestingly that is in your contract when we had to sign this for me to have you appear on the show
1: it is, but I have a rider because I did move into a different room.
0: Oh, okay, good. The bowl of M&Ms with the green ones removed, uh, honestly didn't mind it because I ate
1: them all. Uh, did you melt in your hands. Do they? Yes.
0: <laughs> so have you left the house at all? How have you been holding up in the pandemic, you and your lovely wife and son?
1: Yeah, we've been fine. Yeah. Um, Uh, We realize that when you are forced to stay in the house basically for a full year, go to school, uh, try to get some kind of work, anything, um, you realize that a four bedroom house is just way too small.
0: Oh, really?
1: (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, I have a rambunctious, high energy five year old who turned six year old. And, uh, you know, he he needs his space. He needs to run. He needs to yell. He needs to scream. He needs to do what other kids do. And, that well, now I need to yell and I need to scream and I need to run.
0: (laughs) Uh, So have you been uh, homeschooling him? Is he in school yet? Is he like what? Yeah, he's in full
1: kindergarten. He goes to a charter school and he's doing online like 830 to 2 o'clock regimentedly five days a week. Um, wow. He's in a full, full class. There's like f- 15 kids in the class and like another 12 online. And, and it's tough because, you know, he's, the kid got to sit in an office all day long and be on zoom. I mean, yeah. it's no five-year-old should be subjected to that, you know, on a regular basis, No, but it's been a half a year now and we've developed somewhat of a system to make it is somewhat workable, and uh, it's it, we've had our struggles, but uh, you know, mm-hmm. he's he's doing well with it, about as good as we can expect. So that's all we can ask for.
0: Well, it is good to see you well. Am am I assessing this right? Is there a lot less of you than there was last time I saw
1: you? Yes, you're right. There's about 40 pounds less of me. Shut up. Yeah, yeah. I
0: wouldn't have thought you had 40 pounds to lose.
1: Yeah, yeah. I uh, I I did, and uh, yeah, we've got our jawline back and.
0: I can see it. It's in your face. It's, it's very noticeable. And uh, so was this a concerted effort? Was this uh, was this like stress? Was it? uh,
1: No, it was uh, just, you know, one of those, I think that cliche of i was tired of looking at myself in the mirror the way I was. And I wanted to get back down to my quote unquote game shape. Mm -hmm. You know uh, when you spend uh, all the way into your, your through your thirties, basically looking one way. And then, you know, 40 comes around, and uh, I'm not putting any excuses on, on age, but, uh, you know, everything, you start to drink a little bit more, eat a little bit more, uh, exercise a little less, and, and, and uh, just put it this way, I had a routine doctor's appointment turned into some unroutine doctor's appointments, and, and I got some morning shots, and so it was uh, starting to affect me in ways that I didn't want to affect, and I'm, I'm a daddy, and I, I wanted to keep it that way for a long time, so.
0: Cool. And, and yeah. have, have the health situations also improved as a result?
1: Yeah. Every single test that uh, proved uh, above or warning, everything went back to normal and ideal. So oh, thank you for asking. Great. Yeah.
0: Good for you. Yeah. Bravo. Thank you. All right. Well, taking care of your health and providing for your own future and those of your children well you could say that is a fact of life
1: couldn't you, it James? certainly is well you take the good and you take the bad
0: <laughs> perfect segue my friend into season six episode 12 the rich aren't different from december 12th of 1984 and uh what'd you think did you like it thumbs up thumbs down
1: uh, I'm going to go in the middle with it. I, I, I thought the premise of the episode was kind of useless, um, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, but I, I I'm looking forward to ripping it apart.
0: OK, good, because I love to do that, too. Uh, the episode was written by J.P. Duffy. This is the only writing credit that J.P. Duffy has, meaning not just on the facts of life ever in all capacities and all of show business. JP Duffy has one IMDB credit and this is it.
1: Okay, I can see why.
0: (laughs) It's like (laughs) show business went, nope, bye-bye now. So one wonders what that story is. If this person was just uh, an aspiring writer, was it a spec script that they sent in hoping to get more work and they just said, no, we're just gonna buy the spec script and bye-bye. It's fascinating how uh, showbiz works and and what IMDB doesn't tell us really. Yeah. And then the episode was directed by John Boab. John Boab is now pretty much on hand as the in-house director for the show and will go on to direct most of the episodes from here to the end of the entire series. Um, So before we get into the dissectional synopsis, you know, James, I always like to put my guest on the spot and ask you if you would provide a one to two sentence synopsis overall of the episode, very brief, like something you might find in a TV guide.
1: Joe borrows a watch from um, Blair, uh, and Blair doesn't know that. Uh, She breaks the watch and uh, doesn't really seem to care that much about it, and Blair takes offense to that. She takes her to small claims court over the watch, and in the end, uh, they realize they never really needed to do that, A simple, I'm sorry, and having respect for one another would have been uh, enough. And that's the end of the episode.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Nope, you're right. And your assessments and commentary within that, are they are all spot on. So let's get to it. As we start the episode, we are in Edna's Edibles. The first two and a half minutes of the episode were edited out for the syndication version of the episode that you saw. So I'm about to describe things that you have not seen. Tootie and Natalie start with doing some goofy shtick with they're both cleaning over by the counter. They both got rags and spray bottles and they're kind of bopping around and spraying each other's areas and wiping and spraying their own areas and wiping. And it's just a silly little sight gag to get things started. As we pull out, Mrs. Garrett is at that front and center table in the shop And she's got all of her school books out. She's clearly in study mode. And this is good. We're continuing the thing of Mrs. Garrett's choice to go back to school. That was a decision she made a few episodes ago. And I'm glad they are sticking with it uh, for how many other things the show abandons. And while she's uh, got her books open and is studying, there is a child admonishing her and laying into her. (laughs)
1: That's the very first thing that I wrote down. Opening, the kid has his hand on Miss Garrett's shoulder. Yeah. The, What's he doing?
0: Well, he's uh, he's comforting her because she's trying to conquer algebra. And they're going back and forth. And she has just think she gotten it, but then she doesn't gotten it. So he puts his hand like it's okay. He's just comforting her. Uh, but this kid, Craig, we begin this little subplot for Natalie where... Natalie does not like that there is this new 13-year-old mathematical genius spending all of his time with Mrs. Garrett when Natalie feels like she is good enough at math and perfectly competent at tutoring somebody in educational math, but Mrs. Garrett chose this kid over her. So the running thing through it is Natalie being leery of this kid, suspicious, wondering what he's up to, and questioning his actual humanity like is this a really human kid because he's he's a yeah, calculator
1: she 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 means it when she says that she's going to call the government <laughs>
0: yes uh but in the role of craig this child who is uh, quote unquote helping mrs garrett but also not being the most patient child with her uh his name is andrew cassis C A S S E S E. Did you recognize him from anything, James?
1: I did not. No. Please have tell you me. seen
0: Have you seen a movie called Revenge of the Nerds?
1: Oh, yes. Yes. Remember a while ago?
0: Remember the, the it's a college fraternity that uh-huh. they start for all the nerds, but among them is a tweenage genius that's a little dorky kid with glasses. And that's him. It's the same kid, Andrew, who plays wow. that role.
1: So this kid is really is making a living on being a dorky nerd type.
0: 13-year-old already yeah. being typecast.
1: Yes. Wow. But you well, recall- he was really good at it. I thought he was pretty believable and, and good at, at, at delivering his lines and things like that. He definitely wasn't the weak link of the episode.
0: Yeah. No, I agree. He was fine. He really was. His presence altogether is kind of like, eh, uh But- yeah no he, he did fine with what he had to do for for a kid actor yeah you may recall there's a shot in revenge of the nerds at the party where he ends up between two busty girls and their chesticles are kind uh-huh. of right at face level for him so yeah. there's the shot of him kind of looking left and looking right at the boobs and then he looks right at the camera and you get the eyebrow eyebrow ding kind of <laughs> i'm a kid and i like boobies
1: yeah, well, you know that that kind of reminds me of uh, the, myself back in the day. Uh, you know, when you're only five foot four, uh, <laughs> and 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 here's a fun fact for you: in high school, in ninth grade, freshman year, I was four foot eleven and I weighed eighty five pounds. Oh my god! And so, and I was not I was not afraid uh, to ask girls to dance. By then, the girls had already started their growth spurts, and I hadn't even begun. So as you can imagine, when slow dancing, um, you can imagine what my view was. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I went to a, a Catholic high school, so you had to remember to keep enough distance to save room for the Holy Spirit. But uh,
0: <laughs> but you still, you were like, they're right at eye level. I'm they're right, right there. Yeah. and uh, Yeah,
1: just listening to Careless Whisper and, and just staring straight ahead. <laughs>
0: amazing two other credits from this andrew cassis this actor his um it says in his either his imdb or his uh wikipedia i'm not sure which but uh he went to the nyu film school and he has three years production experience with fox television news in new york and he's an accomplished guitarist and singer He's in his late 40s now, but still apparently out there, though he doesn't have a lot of recent IMDb-style credits. But as a kid, still around this period of time, we're in 1984 right now, he was in the musical Nine on Broadway.
1: Oh, The
0: original Nine with Raul Julia, not the revival with Antonio Banderas. Yes. So the original production in 1982, you need all the kids who, uh, to whom Saragina sings, be Italian, be Italian. So he was one of the replacement kids as the friend, like a kid, he had lines in the Broadway production of that. And then in 1986, he was in a Broadway musical called Smile. The only reason (laughs) I bring this up is that we had an episode of Facts of Life called Smile. And I wondered where the title came from The best we could figure it was the charlie chaplin song from 1936 and uh but one of the possible contenders for the reasoning of the title was a movie in 1975 called smile that was about a beauty pageant and it had been adapted into a broadway musical in 1986 and it's considered one of the great lost broadway shows because they never made a cast recording of the score oh wow and, you know the for musicals even you know musicals successful non-successful that is how they live on is the cast recordings and so this is a show that's not really remembered and not really done but uh yeah this kid was in the original production that was
1: 1986 two years after this i mean this kid was working there's no doubt
0: yeah and revenge of the nerds was 84 so this was a good year for him Jeez. and uh, i guess my only complaint is that the storyline of him tutoring mrs garrett it never is wrapped up it never comes to completion we never hear about mrs garrett taking the test or succeeding or acing it he just kind of is in the show and then he's not once we get to the courtroom
1: yeah and and i and you previous to that courtroom scene he makes natalie feel like she's wanted and, and that, I think that maybe that's the wrap up for him is yeah. that he, de- he decides that, you know, uh, even not, even though he doesn't know that Natalie hates him, I don't think he knows
0: agreed. Yeah. Know,
1: uh, but for some reason, all of a sudden, you know, he, he gets in her good graces. Yeah. So maybe that's the quick wrap up as the subplot to the story.
0: That could be it. And yeah, that probably is the closest thing to a wrap up of this part of the story is that, uh, throughout the first half of the show natalie is as i said leery, suspicious uh and doesn't trust the kid basically she's like he's trying to muscle his way into our family mrs garrett is cooking for him what what the fuck is going on here and then when he comes in to do another tutoring session he says natalie i want you to help me tutor mrs garrett and natalie's like wait wait what and he says well i know math and you know, Mrs. Garrett. So between the two of us, I think if we combine forces, we can really break through and help her to understand algebra and do well on this test. And Natalie, of course, her ego having been stroked is like, oh, what a smart is this kid? You know, I always like this kid. He's a smart one.
1: Yeah. And you know, here's a fun fact. In earlier in the episode, when she's trying to find out if the kid is actually a kid inside this robot body of his. She <laughs> leaves some things around the house. Uh, one like that kids would like, you know, and the the last thing that she leaves on the, around the house is a Pete Rose baseball card mm-hmm. thinking, Oh, he'll pick up the baseball card and he won't want to tutor in math anymore. Well, I'm not sure if you knew, but if it was a Pete Rose rookie card, mm-hmm. um, then this whole business about this expensive watch wouldn't have been a problem because Blair could have just taken the Pete Rose rookie card and cashed it in for the $717,000 it was worth. (laughs) Um, Holy crap. It's a a known fact that depending on how mint the Pete Rose rookie card was, uh, it went between $150,000 and $717,000. What year did that come out? 1963 was his rookie card. Oh,
0: wow.
1: Yeah, and would have been in a collection of someone's, of a 10-year-old. Because it's, (laughs) you know, so uh, who knows? uh, Now, 64 and on, uh, it was still a a very uh, prominent baseball card because of Pete Rose's past. Mm -hmm. And and at the time, it wasn't worth that much. Uh, But if you would have held on it today, because, you know, he was... Exercise out of baseball, and and because of the gambling thing, and because he was one of the greatest hitters to ever live, but never went into the Hall of Fame. Uh, Yeah, his his rookie card was worth a lot of money.
0: Wow, that's thank you for that information. God knows I never ever would have known that or even thought to research that, huh? But the other things she left around the house to see if he played with were marbles. Yes. Okay. Yeah, because it's 1942. They're friggin' little rascals playing with marbles. <laughs> but gee, the other item was silly putty.
1: Oh, yes. I loved
0: silly putty.
1: Yes, but did you love it when you were ten?
0: Um, well, I mean, he's thirteen.
1: Oh, he was thirteen. he was, he was thirteen? So yeah. He's what what would a thirteen here. year old be doing with silly putty?
0: I mean, it's there was still a novelty factor. Just the the whole thing of being able to press it on a comic page okay. of a newspaper yeah. and do that i was i was always kind of amazed by that that it could remove the ink from a newspaper basically
1: yeah i guess i'm gonna get mixed up with play doh and not play-doh is a little bit different i guess yeah than silly putty
0: and the other thing silly putty if you roll it into a ball it would bounce so then joe comes in and joe is kind of in a, a rush a hurry because she has some type of a test coming up where they're going to be asked a certain number of questions in a certain period of time. And she needs to know that she can answer the questions as rapid fire as they can. And so she needs a stopwatch.
1: Okay. Can we stop right there? Please do. Because, because we had a conversation last time, two years ago about Joe and how s- sexy uh, that myself and other straight guys on your show. Yes. Uh, you know, thought of her and, mm-hmm. um, well, I had a bit of a change of opinion after seeing this now. I don't remember season six uh, until I watched this episode, but I, it just seemed like uh, she... Let's talk about the hair right off the bat, okay? Oh,
0: no ponytail. The hair has come down. We are not quite to full mullet. That's coming up in a in a season or two, but ooh.
1: David, with accompanying uh, the jean jacket she was wearing mm-hmm. and the hair was that season six joe or was it season one uncle jesse Kostopoulos? <laughs> because i'm pretty sure there was a have mercy in there because she looked exactly now i did a split screen maybe you can do that on your website but i looked <laughs> up jesse uncle jesse season one and there was not much difference
0: uh it's really i i don't think anybody saw Nancy McKeon and John Stamos in the same room at the same time? That is definitely a valid question.
1: It's all Other... I was thinking about the entire time.
0: <laughs> Other people have said, um, is this John Travolta's costumer from the Sweathogs from Welcome Back, Cotter? Because there's also a lot of uh, John Travolta's hair, Vinnie Barbarino. Um, going on but uh yeah no you are not wrong that's a very good observation um so she joe runs off in the other room and quickly comes back with a watch and she's like natalie show me how to use this how do i get the stopwatch to work so natalie shows her a bunch of things how to do it and she says don't hit this because then it plays the disco hits and at one point she does hit it and it's just that little like single note. We used to have commercials for a watch that would play the yellow rose of Texas. Do you remember that? That infomercial? Yes,
1: yes. And they go on to say that this was Bee Gees. It was the Bee Gees.
0: Yeah, it didn't sound like the Bee Gees. I think it's no. supposed to be staying alive. Staying alive, yes.
1: Yeah. And, and like the sound of this watch, this, it gives you the effect knowing now what we know about watches like that, that this was just this cheap little ass Casio watch that you could get out of a bubblegum machine.
0: Yeah, no, it was clearly not a fancy watch. It wasn't a
1: Cartier or anything like that.
0: No, that's it. So uh, then we go from that to the next scene. And I think it is, it it is said that oh this is blair's watch and joe's like yeah i can't find mine i just need it i'm gonna borrow it so there it is well then we go to the house the next scene a little bit later on in comes blair now i've got to say lisa welchel this is a bad hair show for her wow it's,
1: it's very close to uh to joe's hair
0: it is it's uh, again a little more melody but it's just not styled well it's it's lumpy it's asymmetrical it's it does it's not working it's like did they forget did she just roll out of bed and just run a brush through it because it does not look flattering in any way
1: no no it it really doesn't um i'm just kind of perplexed too by what everyone's wearing you know, uh, I haven't, I hadn't seen some of the episodes in and around this season, but is Natalie always just in a full sweatsuit all day long, all the time? Mo- a Monochrome, same color top, you know, and high top shoes and 2D. I don't know what she's wearing. Ugh. I mean, is it, uh, did, they just, did the department just give up?
0: It, we're talking that this is season six. Starting next season, season seven, they have a new costumer who comes in and she does some very cool and a lot more kind of out there 80s stuff, but definitely way more flattering.
1: Well, I'm glad that she's uh, responsible for season seven and not season six yeah, because it was seven. pretty bad. Now, now, while I'm, I'm hung up also, this is another pet peeve that I have of all episodic television shows mm-hmm. from the past, present and probably future. But it just drives me insane that actors, the characters in their own homes wear their shoes all the time. Oh, it drives me insane. Now, maybe because I'm Canadian and I think it's more of a Canadian tradition to take your shoes off when you enter someone's home, even your own. But, you know, when someone has like heels on or boots on and they're on their couch. Or laying on their bed and you have your dirty ass shoes on it <laughs> drives me it's all i can look at it drives me nuts i and have
0: never had anybody point that out you are absolutely right and like because you, you,
1: who does that
0: <laughs> i mean just for comfort alone especially like you say wearing heels you've i don't know if you've ever had to wear heels but
1: Uh, i i have but that's another podcast for another day that's Um, we don't need
0: to reveal any secrets i just
1: wanted to get that off my chest because it drives me crazy
0: Uh, that's great thank you for pointing that out now i'm going to notice it every single time and i obsess over so many little insignificant things that's that is not an insignificant thing a new obsession has been born james bond
1: yes and can we also talk about the flip phone that we see? Was that in the early, early yes. scene?
0: Yeah, Blair has gone out shopping, and she yeah. went a little bit over. She admits she went a little bit overboard. And some. I think one of the girls says, well, you know, you always could have called us. We could have talked you down. I guess they've done that before. And she said, well, I was trying to find a phone, and then I bought it. And she holds up. How would you describe it?
1: Well, it was a saved by the bell phone, but with an extra flip bottom that flips out so you take the biggest phone possible and then flip it and make it bigger
0: (laughs) but did you gather that it was a a cell phone or in this case it would be a a field phone or a car phone or was it just a, a model of a extension you might plug into your wall
1: no, I think that was the first cell phones. Like I said, it was basically like the saved by the bell type pro- I don't yeah. know if you re- can recall that, yeah. but like that Zach, Zach had
0: Zach had it, yeah, yeah.
1: It was very similar to that, I think. You know, it had the little antenna, um, but just it had this extra flip piece that just would like as if the phone isn't big enough to not fit in your pocket or in your jacket <laughs> or in your or purse. But now you have this this flip piece that it was just, it was ridiculous. I'm like, okay. Yeah. And it just looked fake too. It just didn't look real. It did.
0: Yes. And at no point ever in the future is Blair having a cell phone, a thing in spite of her wealth. It's not a yeah. thing. So it was just a prop for a singular joke that then we never hear from again. Typical, typical. Yeah. Yeah. So then Joe comes in and she had taken her test and she also stopped and played some basketball with some guys. And Blair notices that the watch is, she's like, oh, I didn't know you and I have the same watch. And Joe's like, oh, no, we don't. It's uh, it's yours. And she's like, well, it's not mine. Mine has a crystal. Crystal being the term for the glass front. I never knew that until fairly recently when you refer to the crystal of a watch. It's, oh, it's, it's the glass top cover thing. Yeah. And uh, Blair is like, but, but th- th- no, it's broken and it's not working. And so and Joe, th-
1: Joe's? Yeah, Joe's like, well, who cares? You got like three hundred watches. What's the big deal? And she's like, no, I don't. And she's like, okay, like okay, I have twelve watches. So it's a big deal. Then you got eleven more. What's the big deal?
0: Yeah, Joe is insanely unsympathetic and unapologetic about. She this. was
1: she was downright a douchebag about it. To be honest with you, very yeah. inconsiderable.
0: Yeah. yeah, I'm I, I cannot disagree with that. Joe was for how far we know Joe has journeyed as far as not being this tough street wise kid from the Bronx and always pushing back on anything to do with Blair and her wealth and her privilege. It does feel weird. This feels like a season two episode. This does not feel like a season six episode where they're both 20 years old. They're adults.
1: Uh, yeah, and at the end of the episode, you know how they mention that they're, you know, you're my friend," she says to to Joe. But they're they don't act anything like friends. Right from the beginning of the scene,
0: yeah, y- yeah, they're sitcom friends. And I yeah. will say, Blair and Joe are kind of frenemies. They're those that yeah. they they snipe and gripe, and they certainly find themselves at odds because they come from such different places in life. But when the chips are down, they are friends, and actually. They probably wouldn't admit it. They're best friends,
1: but this this does escalate quick enough to to really feel sympathy of, uh, for Blair right away because it's yeah. like if you put me in that position, who cares if I have twelve watches? First of all, you borrowed it, and you didn't even ask, and now you don't give one crap that you just broke it, regardless of what it costs. Or it's like you're she's actually almost laughing it off.
0: Yeah. And they do have the lines of blair saying you're not even sorry and joe was kind of like yeah i'm sorry but what's the big deal she doesn't mean it clearly it's just ugh and maybe if the writing had taken blair and made blair more snobby if maybe the initial um yeah Blair is
1: blair plays the victim right away and it's like automatically you're you agree with her and everything she says she doesn't say anything that's not warranted
0: yeah agreed and she throws in a
1: couple she throws in a couple okay i'm rich i get it you yes i am rich but you know i mean that's something i gather she says all the time so it's not that really big of a deal but but even if even if she is rich i mean that doesn't give anyone an excuse to to act like what joe did to her friend
0: yeah it's it's yeah it's terrible i'm trying to think of if it would have helped to have blair when she says to joe what whoa where did you get that watch and have joe go huh what do you mean and then look down and see and realize she still has blair's watch on and blair could say something like where did you steal that from i know you could never afford that on your own
1: yeah have joe be
0: like it's not mine i actually borrowed it from you But I could buy a watch like this. I could save my, what the, you know, kind of, what the fuck is that supposed to mean? That I wouldn't wear something this nice.
1: It does change. uh, You know, it does flip at the very, very end of the scene um, where finally Blair has had enough and she does get a a jab in that, uh, that hurts Joe's feelings. But, you know, Joe pushed her to it. You know, the line is, is, uh, uh, Joe says, okay, why don't you just go up there and break something of mine? Mm-hmm. And and Blair, you know, stares her down and says, if you had anything worth breaking. Ooh. Yeah. But the funniest thing is, if you notice Joe's awkward pause, I mean, it goes way beyond okay, you made a point or, oh, that hurt. It's a weird pause. Like it's way too long. It's like there was like one extra beat there and she looks down like, it's like, did I miss my mark? I don't know. And then she turns around and leaves. It's just, it was an awkward pause for me.
0: Yeah, I agree. It did kind of, the the, the argument was kind of circular. It kind of went around and kept hitting sort of the same stuff. And then Joe leaves. And then the last thing is Blair says to Natalie and Tootie, I thought she knew me. I thought I knew her. So (laughs) the stakes are very high here for Blair. We are kind of understanding why she is so upset. But that's the end of the scene. Then we go back to the store. And this is the scene where Mrs. Garrett is worried because Craig is late. And what am I gonna do if he doesn't show up? I've got this test and I have to conquer algebra
1: where is Craig? He's supposed to be here by four.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's your Mrs. Garrett. And they're like, it's one minute past girl. Cool. you're Jets.
1: And, and I'm, I'm, I find it funny too, uh, all the way up into this point that uh, 2D is completely useless in this episode up until this point, but she's awkwardly in the background. Like, and it's just, it's like they gave her really nothing to do and nothing to say and I just I'm like, why is she like taking up half the sc- the screen? Like, it was just weird that I felt. Now, as we go on, she becomes the the fake lawyer. But but yeah. uh, up until you know, it was just found it odd that she really had nothing to do, but yeah, she was not, still there. Like she didn't even need to be there.
0: Yeah, I y- yes, I agree. It's after the commercial where she takes on a more prominent role in the the story. So I think she kind of has to be there as window dressing just to witness what's happening and then be up to speed when she gets into it for realsies.
1: And why why would why would Blair own this kind of watch? Would you ever see a watch like that on her? the you know the the black like you know almost looks like this version of a not i won't even say uh, apple watch because that's the apple watch looks way no. more sophisticated but like one of those cheap like it's almost like the the watch david hasselhoff wore to call kit with
0: yeah it's it's you know? like a casio like it looks yeah. like service merchandise 3995
1: do you remember the do you remember the watch it was it a casio that had the little calculator buttons on it
0: i believe it did yeah cuz casio made calculators too
1: yeah. And, I mean, yeah, I mean, I really wanted one of those back when I was 13, but, yeah. but I can't I can't imagine Blair like having that in her Rolodex of watches.
0: It's it's weird. And then later, spoiler alert, when everything is all uh, ironed out, Joe finally does say, look, let me buy you a new watch. And she says, what did it cost? 20 bucks? And Blair says, 300.
1: Yeah, so in 1984 terms... That would be probably the price of about two or three Apple Watches. That would probably, that's, we're probably talking $1,000. Yeah. Today. Yeah. $300 in
0: 1984, according to the internet is worth $752 and nine cents. Yeah. The equivalent of a $750 watch today.
1: that that plays that plays a one note staying alive chorus
0: yeah (laughs) in in that really cheap and cheesy digital watch manner that belies its its value i mean it could an expensive watch could do that but why but it is very weird um and oh oh there is a little bit that is cut during the argument where it does come out where joe says well you've you know you've got 12 watches or something now you've got 11. and blair says what if it had great sentimental value what if that watch was hundreds of years old and it had been handed down through my family and joe says,
1: an heirloom watch that plays staying alive it's
0: like ah you're right honestly joe's right there (laughs) she did catch on
1: yeah but she i I mean blair still makes her point i mean that's the the point is like start caring for a minute
0: Yeah, it's not the gift. It's the thought. It's that same idea. It's not about the watch. It's about the disrespect that Joe is clearly showing for Blair and her things. (sighs) So then at the end of this scene where Mrs. Garrett is worried about whether Craig will show up, Craig shows up. And then that's where he says, Natalie, join me. So I guess they figure they've wrapped that story up before we even go to commercial. But as Joe is sitting at the table doing the books for Mrs. Garrett, as another moment of her being the de facto store manager/slash accountant, uh, a cute guy walks in. He's like, "Hi," and uh, okay, can, Natalie's like, "Hello."
1: Can we talk about this exit for Blair? Because I have no idea what happened in this scene. So I, I mean, uh, so Blair goes to leave, and she goes to the door and she goes right up to the door sees the man on the other side of the glass raises her hand doesn't get the door turns around and exits the other way mhm and i had no idea why blair went to the door acknowledged the man and then turned around and left and went out the other way of the room oh I, I, did you catch that cuz it was I have it to was admit. like
0: I did you need even to go back that
1: you need to go back and look at it because it made no sense at all whatsoever I was like what 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 is she doing
0: well i I totally missed that altogether, but doesn't it make sense that she knows the process server was coming, and so she the the man reveals himself to be serving court papers to Joe that Blair is suing Joe for the watch but the idea is that Blair doesn't want to be there when it happens, but it's her way of saying she's here. This is the time. This is a good time. It was just, just, it was just
1: really odd to me because it just, it just looked like she was going to open the door.
0: I did not even notice that probably because the man who comes in, the actor's name is Greg Winfield he has only three imdb credits over two years and then nothing so i have no idea whatever happened to him i've googled him i may or may not have googled to see if he did anything shirtless or anything porny and he has not but he is cute but re-watching this james and i just pulled up the scene to look at this yeah I forgot that Blair basically comes in and says, by now I'm sure you've had time to think about it. It's been several days and I'm assuming you figured out that you were wrong. And Joe says to her, I'm not wrong. So uh, for that reason, it must be that I think looking at this now in hindsight, it's this is Blair kind of giving Joe one last chance to to fess up and do the right thing. And Joe does not. Joe is a bad bastard person this episode.
1: Yeah. So basically, Blair turns around and releases the Kraken. She yeah. know, let's, brings him in.
0: Yeah. That's how Act One ends with him saying, I'm looking for Joe Paul in the check. And she's like, Yeah, that's me. And he hands her the paper. She's like, What's this? He's like, You have been served. This is a subpoena to appear in small claims court. And The others, Tootie and Natalie, and she all look at it after he leaves, like, this has got to be a joke. And then they realize quickly, it isn't a joke. And as we go to commercial, Blair is suing Joe. Ah!
1: As you would for that Casio watch. Yeah, it's, Uh,
0: this is, before we get to the next uh, bits after the commercial, this is kind of a sitcom trope. We're kind of hitting a lot of them now these days with the facts of life. Like the we had Joe opening up a business, selling pizzas out of the kitchen. Like, I'm going to suddenly start my own business. What could go wrong? And with this, is there a sitcom ever that somehow didn't end up with one of the characters suing the other one over a little thing that they think is a big thing? Mm. I mean, don't you consider that? Isn't that really a sitcom trope?
1: Pretty much, yeah. I would agree with that.
0: I remember it happened on the Jeffersons. Did it happen on the Vernon Shirley or um, Three's Company or whatever? I'll have to look that up, I guess, but I feel like it's a sitcom trope. But um, when we come back from commercial, Tootie is coaching Joe. We do have a little tiny bit cut from syndication, but this is on brand in that Tootie is going to be an actress. But both of Tootie's parents are
1: lawyers. She makes you think that she really knows what she's talking about. And mm-hmm. and the, the, the line that gets it for me right off the bat was, you know, she's probably going to fly in her father's heavyweight lawyers for this watch because mm-hmm. that's what you would do. You would spend thousands of dollars for uh, the best lawyers and on private planes to make sure that... Uh, you know, the watch gets fixed for this $300 mm-hmm. watch. So that was kind of ridiculous. I, I I didn't know what to think after that, where the scene was going to go. And it just got more ridiculous with the stuffed animals and things like that. But yeah, um, yeah at least they gave Tootie something to do.
0: Yeah agree because
1: she had nothing to do in the first act so yes
0: and actually she's giving good advice to Joe as far as she's like uh make eye contact don't look down and she's like uncross your arms the body language this is important you need to and she's kind of doing a good job of saying girl this is all about how you present yourself not the facts
1: yeah Joe's not taking it seriously and definitely 2D is being like a real lawyer and talking about what would happen in a real courtroom with real courtroom drama
0: and at one point joe starts to answer one of her sample questions and as she's looking at Tootie, Tootie says nah not to me to them the jury and we have this visual joke of a cutaway to the couch and the sofa table behind it where she has this menagerie of stuffed animals who are supposed to be the jury. It's pretty funny, actually.
1: Yeah, and you don't realize how big some of these stuffed animals are until Natalie sits in the middle, and there's literally one or two that are bigger than Natalie. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, where, yes. where are we keeping these animals? Where, where are they in someone's room?
0: Yeah, it's, I, I don't know where they're from either.
1: That panda bear is ridiculous.
0: That's, it's, a, it's a raccoon.
1: Oh, is it? That's is a, a raccoon. That- that's a okay. raccoon. It's it's gray.
0: Yeah. It's not a, it's not a panda. It's, a, but yeah, I'm looking and it looks like we have a, we have a crab. There's a teddy bear. There's a lion. Uh, one thing that is not there is a tiger. You know, I had a big ongoing relationship with this sombrero tiger, a tiger in their bedroom that had a sombrero on it. My listeners will know what I'm talking about. <laughs>
1: What I'm looking at right now now uh Natalie with that feathered hair and the uh the squint she looks more like Simon lebon <laughs> uh, lead singer of Duran Duran <laughs> uh,
0: but yeah, we are i I did pull it up here so James and I are both looking at this right now because yeah, this jury is quite funny. There's an elephant, but it's like a brown elephant with tusks. What is the thing with the pink ears?
1: Pink ears yeah. It's, it's like it's it's a version of pink eye, but it's pinkier. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty crazy, but yeah, there is no sombrero tiger. I meant to check that earlier. I'm glad we took a moment to do that to verify. So when Natalie comes in, like you said, Tootie convinces her to sit among the animals, and that is helpful for us to understand the scale and the scope of these these animals. And then when she says. Natalie, I need you to be my star witness. And Natalie's like, no, 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 I'm not taking sides. I think this is all stupid. Joe should just apologize. And this could be settled out of court. And uh, when Tootie is saying, Joe, if Blair brings in those lawyers, you know, this could be a problem. And Joe says, I have to admit where I come from, meaning the Bronx, going to court often means going to jail. So I am scared and I appreciate you helping me. But Joe's uh rationale is I can't back down because I'm scared. Yeah. And it's like, "Oh, that's hard to argue with, but you're still wrong. You were still being a total fucking jerk."
1: Yeah, and it uh she she lost her sex appeal to me, I uh, have to be honest with you.
0: Yeah, if I were a straight man or a lesbian, I'd probably feel the same way so the next scene we are in the court and uh let me see how to talk about what happens in the court number one it is very quickly apparent that even though Tootie dressed up in this amazing plum colored power suit with the power blouse she needed a power bow to go with it but she still looks amazing you realize that Kim Fields is only 15 years old James doesn't she look so much older
1: yeah, she, she really does. And uh, she, she really looks the part of a, of a lawyer. Uh-huh. Um, and you know who really looks the part of Jesse and the Rippers? And that would be <laughs> Joe wearing the oversized tweed coat with the, <laughs> with the black skinny tie tucked into her shirt. What are they thinking?
0: it's we've we've noted before that joe's wardrobe this season in particular the hair came down so we don't have the ponytail to telegraph the lesbianism so now she looks like every stand-up comic uh at a lesbian open mic night up in p-town like paula poundstone (laughs) or uh it's so funny how she has that look and it is so butch it's so yeah and butch.
1: the and the the shoulder pads come to a point a la vanilla ice or senior hall kind of yeah. coat and, and and i'm I'm not sure who told her to tuck her tie in halfway up through her shirt yeah it's i, it's, I, I was that ever a thing i never did that
0: uh, i don't know did i mean um... unless i
1: was eating spaghetti or something like that <laughs>
0: did did Matthew Modine do that in married to the mob maybe
1: no oh, I have and no that, uh, idea but it, it it's it's bad yeah it it's is really bad. bad
0: yeah uh, but my point was that Tootie, even though she is dressed to the nines and looks fabulous and is there prepared to be Joe's attorney she is quickly informed that that you we don't have attorneys here this is small claims court. There's no jury here. Like, what the fuck are you doing? And... Yeah, and
1: were 15-year-olds we're even allowed in the courtroom probably, and able to take on a lawyer role or like that? And she probably she had no business even being in the room.
0: Yeah. Well, when she identified herself as Joe's lawyer, the judge says, y- we don't yeah. have lawyers in this. And she's like, I mean, I'm her friend. They do have friends, like on people's court.
1: Yes, at that point, though the judge probably would have told her to go take your seat with everyone else yeah. and not continue to stand there.
0: Yeah, but what it ends up happening, the, the thing for Tootie that we do to the end of the episode is that every time the judge refers to Joe Palnicek as the defendant, Tootie does this laughing thing. She starts laughing, like, ha <laughs> It's just so ridiculous, Your Honor, to hear the word defendant after the name Joe Polnicek, because I know what a woman of honesty and integrity she is. <laughs> so every time the word defendant comes up, Tootie's Pavlovian response is laughing. And finally the judge is like, one more word out of you, and I'll send you to traffic school.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I I I think the it was she laughs like three or four times before he finally decides to give us the joke that just didn't have the payoff because the laughing there was no reason for her to laugh, there, like no. it, it didn't do anything, it wasn't funny. It, yeah. Um, I, if I was a judge, I just would have thrown her on her ass like after the first time,
0: yeah, like get out felt, of my courtroom, yeah, it felt very imposed, it did. And the, I think the joke they were going for is that, uh, it is. When, when we come into the courtroom, the judge is dealing with uh, a married couple trying to get custody of their pet parakeet. And uh, the judge, by the way, if you'll let me do a little sidebar here, yes. the judge is played by actor Elliot Reed. He wasn't just an actor. He was also a writer. He wrote episodes of The Love Boat, of Love, Sydney, and of Aftermash. Wow he has 95 acting credits from 1940 to 1992 that is a 52-year career and he appeared in the absent minded professor and in gentlemen prefer blondes he was one of the suitors I think he's the one that ends up with Jane Russell not the one that ends up with Marilyn Monroe but He's like he had some significant roles, and that is partially due to the fact that his training and his early career was Orson Welles Mercury Theater Company in the 1930s and 40s, which for those people who know their history of the theater, that was a big deal. Orson Welles Company, that's what gave birth to actors like William Holden and... um agnes moorhead and they all appear in all the early films like citizen kane magnificent ambersons so uh yeah this elliot reed uh had a quite a substantial career and he was also a political satirist on the jack parr show and uh, a news program that a lot of people don't remember called that was the week that was and i assume that's where his kind of his writing and his performing kind of collided but uh, yeah an impressive career and he's wonderful as the judge
1: yeah he's great uh, he has no no control of the courtroom whatsoever but that's in the writing not his. he that's uh, a yeah. he's great i recognized mr davies right away
0: of the married couple Mr and Mrs Davies who yes. how how did you recognize Mr Davies Because
1: I am a huge fan of Three's company um, <gasps> I I I know I know the episodes inside and out I, mm-hmm. I still watch it to this day I watched it before we met here today on zoom oh. and uh and uh, mr davies was the reoccur- reoccurring character of dean traverse the headmaster and dean of the culinary arts school that jack dripper attends um and i did some research on the timeline and uh dean Travers appears in three's company from 81 to 84 so oh. this was right on the on the on the footsteps of uh of this episode because he looks very similar to what he did he looks a little bit older, but that makes sense because it would have been the end of his threes company tenure. Yes. Yes.
0: That is so funny that you bring that up because that is exactly the note I have in my notes that that's where I recognized him from too. I was like, wait a minute. He's, uh, but, but I couldn't place him. Then when I looked at his credits, I went Dean Travers, of course. Yeah. And he was only on six episodes, but he made quite an impression. You would, I would have thought did. it was
1: more. He did. He he was uh, he was very annoying man, and and his voice and his look, and, and I think his his starring episode was called Teacher's Pet, and uh, and then of course Jack. I think there was some stuff with his daughter and things like that, and dating his daughter, and
0: yeah, you know, so, uh, yeah, that
1: sounds but, right. Uh, yeah, but he was yeah. I recognized right away. I was like, oh, there's Dean Travers.
0: Huh. Well, the other half of this married couple that the, the judge is refereeing as we begin this courtroom scene, the actress who plays Mrs. Davies is Ruth Manning. Ruth Manning has 64 credits in a 53-year career, starting in 1951 as a working character actress and many credits in popular sitcoms all throughout the 70s, 80s. And she was also on an episode of Three's Company. Did you recognize her?
1: Oh boy, I should know this. Um, I, I'm. <laughs> uh, give me a hint. Give me a hint. The episode in which she appeared
0: was a Cindy episode. So you may have blocked it out because you know the Cindy episodes of Three's Company are pretty bad.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm actually. They're on. They're being aired right now as we speak on my uh, rotation. Cable rotation. Uh huh on fubu tv uh and i'm trying to remember if- she
0: appeared in season five the episode is called jack to the rescue and that was just the,
1: on yesterday
0: and this is the episode where she plays cindy's boss's wife um so that's our three's company connection the last thing i'll say about ruth manning is that she also might be most recognized as aunt harriet in a series of commercials during the 1980s for craft mayonnaise, hmm. I will post some of them on uh, on the web page. They are on the YouTubes, and they're they're very uh, interesting. As far as I don't know if I've ever had a conversation at a party about the brand of mayonnaise that I put in my tuna salad, coleslaw, whatever. It's it's commercials at their finest.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm a Hellman's guy myself. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. But none of that fucking Miracle Whip shit. It's not even mayonnaise. It's called salad dressing. That should tell you I, something, right? I there.
1: use it. I use it in coleslaw. That's when I use Miracle Whip. Give it oh, a little okay. that extra extra tang.
0: That that is acceptable. That is yeah. acceptable. Uh, the one joke that really works. The the joke is that they're fighting over custody of a parakeet. But the joke that really works well is uh, the judge says, "Wait a minute, you two are divorced," and Mister Davies says, "Twice." Twice, and Hearst's response is, "Yes, nothing was lovelier the second time around." <laughs>
1: <laughs> and My it bam. ends up that uh, that one of them gets the parakeet on the weekdays, and the other gets the weekend the weekend yeah. visits,
0: shared custody. Yeah. But back to Joe and Tootie, it is learned from the bailiff that this is. Uh, substitute judge. The actual judge who would have been here has the flu. So this is a traffic court judge that's filling in for him.
1: Yes. And the bailiff is two inches from their ears. Like he Uh, is creeping on them. mm. Like he literally doesn't lean forward to speak. He's already right behind their heads. Agreed.
0: It's like they, they try to pass off like he was just already sitting in the row behind them and overhears. What they're why, saying.
1: why would a bailiff yeah. be sitting in the public t- seats directly behind these two girls? It's very, yeah. very creepy.
0: He, if, I mean, Joe, okay, maybe he was trying to get a little closer to the Uncle Jesse Joe there, yeah. uh, but maybe he was looking at Tootie, not to make this that because he's African American, he was uh, favoring Tootie, but honest to God, you could have put them next to each other and they would have looked like a couple, even though he's probably more than twice her age yeah it was it was
1: just creepy bailiff right from the yeah, start
0: agreed yes indeed uh so we get to the point and and so back doing our complete sidebars and our journeys away bringing it back to part of the joke of the judge is that his responses are like he makes the judgment on behalf of the Davies and then caps his uh, smack of the gavel with and be sure you wear your seat belts out there
1: yes Every every joke that he had had to do with something, had to do with traffic.
0: Yes, and there are a couple other jokes. I didn't write them down. They were fine. But I think that the writers thought that the big culmination, the final button to this, is when he silences Tootie for laughing on the third or fourth time and says, one more word out of you, and I'll send you to traffic school. Eh, it was fine. It was funny. It was okay. But that that attempt at a little running joke for this character, it didn't really hit as hard as I think they no. wished it did. And, and was traffic
1: was traffic school a horrible place to be? Was that something you never wanted to do? Or...
0: Well, I mean, traffic school is always a place you don't want to be. Typically, you it's a speeding ticket. You're trying to yeah. not get your points on your license and your insurance. So traffic school is, most people are there under duress. I I would see that as a punishment, but I don't know. Yeah,
1: it just it just seemed so weird that the judge had absolutely no control of the courtroom. Yeah. Um, and, you know, thus Miss Garrett just comes running in, barges in, pat no security. The bailiff doesn't do anything. Yeah. She goes right up to the front and the judge lets her speak. I mean, what kind of I mean, this wouldn't happen, right?
0: i know it's so much of this wouldn't happen in a real court but this is obviously being written by writers who don't know any better and yeah mrs garrett does need something more to do in this episode and it's her breaking in saying "Uh, she just found out she didn't know this was going on because she's been so wrapped up in her algebra test so can't you just talk it out
1: yeah, and it was the kid that squealed, right? It was Craig that that. That's right. It that, was Craig. And it's it just was odd to me that uh, that Natalie somehow got into the courtroom and nobody noticed that horrible, <sighs> horrible entrance of the mysterious person in the uh, monochromatic uh, colored trench fedora coat. and trench coat and glasses, because yeah. uh, security wouldn't be on that at all. No. Uh, and we can only assume that she wore the trench coat to cover up the fact that she was probably still wearing sweats. <laughs> yeah.
0: And I forget what which scene it is earlier where Natalie, in particular, she's wearing uh, like a sweatshirt. It has a pattern or a design on it, but in typical sweatshirt, it blouses out and then yes. gathers at the bottom, and the gather landed below her hips so that the blousing out part of it was over her hips, which is the widest part of any woman's body. And all it was doing is just making her look wider. She looked so much heavier than she actually is.
1: I found that this was the first time that we actually ever heard a studio audience. Was this in front of a studio audience? Oh, yes. Because I didn't really recall hearing any actual live humans other than a laugh track until um she reveals the big reveal of natalie i'd like to call to as my witness natalie and she stands up and like we had no idea the audience had no idea that she was in the courtroom and you actually get a ooh,
0: yeah and and also built into that is this is blair's witness just after, in the previous scene, Tootie is like, Natalie, you're going to be there. You're going to be my star witness. And Natalie says, I'm not going to take sides. Well, now all of a sudden she's there on Blair's behalf. And it's like, what the fuck? I'm I'm, yeah. with, I'm with Tootie on this one. It's like, what the? You said you not want to get involved. What yeah, I'm surprised.
1: I'm surprised uh, Tootie didn't turn around and say, A2, Natalie. A2, because yes. Because she totally s- just stuck a dagger in her back. Uh, no, that was pretty bad
0: it's true and she this is where and she kind of doesn't really say I'm favoring Blair though she's not wrong if she said I am on Blair's side on this Joe I think you were a dick she wouldn't have been wrong we would have totally been on Natalie's side but as we are talking between Mrs Garrett whom the judge eventually does say could could you sit down and step away from the bench please Uh, Then as Blair and Joe start talking about the watch, and it seems like it's not going well for Joe, whereas the judge says, okay, but you did borrow the watch. And Joe's like, well, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, and you did break the watch while you... I mean, yeah, but you know, but she was all dead. It's like, no, girl, this it's is the exact,
1: It's exactly what Blair said in the first scene. It is an open and do- closed door case. It is, it is yeah. black and white. It is an easy case. You broke my f and watch. Yeah. <laughs> there's nothing you can't, you can't, there's nothing to defend.
0: Exactly. And uh, Blair and says, uh,
1: Joe just, yeah, sorry.
0: Oh, 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 actually, a, a point I want to put in this reminded me a lot of. Um, I used to watch the people's court back in the Judge Wapner days, which is in the 80s. Uh, And one of the things that always struck me, it's one of those where like, do these people not watch this show? First of all, Judge Wapner was always grouchy as hell. But the other thing is that whenever people would come in and say, and when I went to her door to collect the money, she was so completely nasty and called it that. And the judge always is like, no, no, no did does she owe you the money and did you try to collect it and did she say no it's the thing of do you not understand there are no laws against acting like an asshole it's always about the facts cut and dry did you lend the money did you try to pay them back did you try to get the money back even if you tried to do some shady stuff in the meantime it never ever is about who was the bigger dick It's about who was right and wrong. According to the facts, that's what our legal system provides for. Yes. And this, the the talking to Joe made me think of that because it's, it's like, yeah, Joe, there's you, you can't get around it now in a fucking court of law. Is this what Blair needed
1: to do to show you that? Perhaps Tootie had some sort of amazing, you know, defendant lawyer, something up her sleeve that she never got to do, that she was going to, you know, uh, switch things up on the, you know, on the, on the plaintiff, but we'll never know because there's no (laughs) lawyers allowed. But what we do know is that Natalie uh, sung like a bird. She put the defendant in the, you know, in her place. And then Natalie just said, no more questions. And she got up and she just decided to leave. The judge didn't say you're done here. Uh, She just, she just let like, (laughs) it didn't make sense.
0: And in the part of that didn't Joe say objection your honor and then Tootie say overruled or sustained or something.
1: yeah there was no and absolutely like, no order in the courtroom whatsoever.
0: Yeah, you would have expected this judge to be a lot grouchier and banging that gavel like, "No, wait, 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 what?" And I
1: I guess there's an out there because he is a traffic cop, a traffic I, judge and and he doesn't really I, know what the heck's going on.
0: I I guess but then we get to the the heart of the matter Blair says since this happened she's treating me like a rich stereotype my stuff still deserves respect and Joe says why do I need to respect a stupid watch and Blair says not the watch Joe respect for me and then the judge says okay there's clearly more stuff going on here Clearly yeah. you are a lesbian couple having a spat. Let's break for lunch and we'll come back to this after. Yeah, we'll
1: waste more taxpayer dollars and we're going to go <laughs> to lunch. And and then we'll we'll come back after recess. I'm like, seriously? You're going this case into recess? Yeah. Like if, if this was Judge Judy, this would have been over before it even started. Like this oh, is so ridiculous. True. Yes. But yeah, so they go so they the so the courtroom empties in five seconds
0: yeah and mrs garrett in her wisdom seeing that there's been a little breakthrough she's the one that grabs tootie and natalie and says maybe we should go out here but that's that's
1: after she actually um under uncovers the fact that uh, natalie was lying to her earlier uh and uh she really wasn't studying her. was it
0: natalie is still under under oath so Mrs. Garrett takes the opportunity. And what does she ask her?
1: She she asked, she asked Natalie something about, were you there instead of, you know, were you oh. really there? And Natalie's answer was, no, we drove up to meet some guys.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mrs. Garrett says, was last weekend really a study weekend when you were gone yes. the whole time? And Natalie says, begrudgingly, no, we drove up to Vassar to meet guys.
1: Vassar to meet guys in my sweatsuit
0: yeah (laughs) and i did make a note that i was happy with this because vassar is in poughkeepsie and that is less than an hour's drive from uh peekskill where uh this the the two fictional schools uh, eastland uh and langley are located so i was very happy now just last week we had them talking about oh we have to go and watch a wrestling match at cornell in ithaca new york yeah. which is a three and a half hour drive away from Peakskill. It's like, no, 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 I'm, wrong, no. I mean,
1: the, 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 the time you put in for a booty call, I guess.
0: <laughs> but with this case, uh, P- Poughkeepsie, Vassar, uh, this, I have, you, you get my seal of approval, Riders. That is an appropriate location to be an extension of Peekskill. So with the courtroom cleaned out now, at so now point- it's just
1: now it's just they're both they're both naked face to face basically there it's there's no 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 one no one else yeah. in the room to hear the bullshit yeah. there's uh joe lets down her guard and blair lays it out on the line and they finally get two humans beings speaking to each other and joe finally understands what Blair's been trying to tell her this whole time is just, you know, it wasn't about the watch. It was about respecting me no matter if I have money or not. We're friends and you should treat me as a friend. And it took getting to a courtroom and subpoenaing you and, and all this other stuff uh, to finally mm-hmm. get the message across. And Joe finally agrees. Uh, and and then that's when we find out that, you know, let, let me just buy you a watch. You know, it couldn't have cost that much. And that's when we find out that it's a $300 watch. <sighs> crazy no and she says hey, can I buy you a cup of coffee instead <laughs> put my arm around you and walk out <laughs> and don't let's not tell the judge that we've come to a conclusion let's just let's just let them come back from recess and wait <laughs> 5 10 15 minutes for this to start and we won't show up which I'm sure yeah. they'll be really happy about
0: yeah would you settle for a cup of coffee should be would you settle for me paying the court costs to dismiss yeah. our case yeah uh, it's more like it. Maybe they figure Tootie, the attorney's going to take care of all that when when they come back. But the line that Joe says that I wrote down that I like, that was really nice. And Lisa Welchel delivered it beautifully, where um, talking about the watch, she says, I don't care. I do care Um, when, when that Blair is talking about how she often is stereotyped and dismissed As being a rich nobody because she has her money, that her money is all who she is. And she says, And when it comes to people thinking that about me, I don't care. I do care when it's you. You're my friend. You're supposed to know there's more to me than that. That's a lovely sentence. That's a lovely line. And
1: and if she would have said that 20 minutes earlier, there would have been no episode. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's so true. And then, as you already said, they walk out of the court arm in arm to end the episode. And James, we have the most bizarre thing. As the credits roll, as we're leaving and we're about to see directed by John Boab, we hear this weird little piano riff that completes the episode. It's just a little plinky twinkly pam. bum bum ba dum bum. The facts of life are all about you. And we have never, ever, ever in six seasons had music at the end of an episode, James. Really? We used to have interstitial music. That's the music I play in between the bumpers and the interview on on the podcast. Uh, That used to be used in season one. Anytime we would have a passage of time on a couple of episodes, They tried to put a little intro music at the beginning, but that was only a couple of times did they try to do that. And it was mostly abandoned after season one. This season, season six, we did try a little intro music at the beginning of one of the episodes, and they never did it again. And now we have this thing at the end, and I don't think they do it again this season. But starting next season, seasons seven, eight, and nine, when the aesthetic completely changes and it goes full crazy 80s then we have always introductory music exterior shots and music at the end of the episode oh wow but this is so so weird matter of fact you know what i'm going to insert it and i'm going to play it right here right now <laughs> never been done before
1: no it sounded live too it sounded like a live piano
0: yeah and it's kind of i was like is this all in the family it has like a boy the way glenn miller played
1: they they forgot to they they forgot to cut over to the bailiff on the piano on the side (laughs) riffing on his own
0: (laughs) well james we're at the end of the episode i usually like to ask my guests if you can think of a classic commercial at the end, that was something you loved from your childhood. We did this last time and I forget what you said, Um, but can you think of a commercial?
1: A classic commercial from my childhood? Mm -hmm. Well, there was always a commercial I remember that used to air, I think pretty much on a daily basis on one of the channels I used to watch during lunchtime as a kid. Mm -hmm. And it was a lifesavers commercial. Oh, and the song—I still remember the song to this day. the The, uh, the hook was very memorable. It was a uh, dip, dip twiddle twiddle the only one candy with the hole in the middle and then it got and then it went totally like newbie doo up up doobie up, and there's like totally four-part harmony twiddle twiddle the only one candy with the hole in the middle lifesavers and it totally went into like falsettos and stuff and it was like this whole acapella life-saver sort of a like a yeah I, full acapella yeah full acapella
0: wow i'll have to find that i don't remember that um, but I, I wouldn't typically because you are a bit younger than I. So I will find that. I will post it because I want to hear it myself. So, James, thank you so much for doing this. Hopefully it won't be another two years before this happens again.
1: Yeah, and hopefully it'll be less than another year before I see you in person again.
0: Uh, that would be nice, too. I'll settle for seeing you and we'll put the podcast second on the the want list as far as that goes so thank you again for making the time i so appreciate it keep doing well keep surviving the
1: pandemic all right thank you for having me David. it's always a pleasure and great seeing you and uh have a good rest of season six as badly dressed as they are (laughs) i will try
0: and there you have it that was james bondy Next week, I'm going to be watching Season 6, Episode 13, Christmas in the Big House. This is one of my all-time favorite episodes, and so therefore, I cannot do it without bringing Matthew Arder back. So he will be here next week. Look forward to that. You can watch the episode for free at DailyMotion.com. The link is already in your show notes and on this episode's webpage. That is all for now. Thank you so much for listening to this week's show. And remember, the facts of life are all about you. Let's Face the Facts was created, produced, written, hosted, and edited by me, David Almeida. My theme song was beautifully arranged and recorded by Ned Wilkinson. Visit my website, facethefactspod.com, for supplemental photos and videos, audio extras from the digital cutting room floor, links to my social media, and ways that you can support the show financially. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in again next week for another thrilling episode of Let's Face the Facts.